two themes in Ephesians that, uh, that jump out at me, especially in the, for this passage. Um, one is the glory of God we see running throughout, well, we see it running throughout the whole scripture. And the other is our high calling in Christ, or what we would maybe say God's redemptive purpose for us who are in Christ Jesus. And I just want to draw our attention to these two things because these things need to be laid down as a foundation for what we're going to look at in this passage this morning. Um, for a calling to holiness, for a calling to live for Christ, for a calling to live the way that God has called us to live. And without these things, it could just turn into a, to a call for just to be moral, to be good people. And God calls us to those things, but we, there has to be something undergirding it. So in the first three chapters we see that how the Apostle Paul has carefully laid for us this foundation of what God has done to graciously redeem us to himself and who and what we were before he so graciously made us alive in Christ. In glorious detail, the Apostle recounts those things that God our Father Son and Holy Spirit have done to save us from his wrath, making us children of his kingdom, a holy people, a royal priesthood, as Peter puts it in chapter 2 of his first epistle. Before we were alive in Christ, we cared nothing for the things of God. We cared nothing for his glory. But now that we've been made new, we love God's glory more than anything. We share God's heart. We share his concerns for all the things that he is concerned about. The other thing that Paul drives home in this book, in this letter to the Ephesians, is our high calling in Christ. In consideration of what all that God has called us to I wanted to go through and recount some of the things that, that Paul mentions here. These things that God has done in our lives, these things that are reality of who we are in Christ and who we are becoming in Christ. It's not just like the church is not something that we just join, like it's a membership or an exercise club or whatever. We are born into it. We are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus. So these are the things that God has done. This is who and what we are in Christ. We are saints. And that would probably be enough right there. I mean, when we consider these things, really consider these things, we're saints of God. These things should dictate how we act, how we live our lives. I mean, you could put this on your job application. Somebody be looking at it. So you're a saint. 
Can you tell me about that? But we are. That's a reality. We are faithful in Christ. We are blessed in Christ. We are chosen by God from all eternity to be holy and blameless. We have been predestined for adoption as sons. Predestined. That means that God predetermined where we would be and what he would do in our lives. Infallibly. Known and nothing could thwart the plan of God in your life as one of God's chosen people. We are redeemed through his blood, the blood of Christ. We have God's grace lavished upon us to the praise of his glory. To the praise of his glory. That glory should be the, at the epicenter of every Christian's heart. That should drive us. As Paul commands us in Corinthians 10.31, that we should do everything to the glory of God, even the most mundane things. We have been made alive when we were dead. We have been sealed by the Holy Spirit, in the Holy Spirit. We have been enlightened. We are His body, the church. We have been saved by grace. We have been raised up and seated with Christ that we might receive in the coming ages the immeasurable riches of His grace. That's chapter 2, verse 7. That verse just blows me away. I don't know what it means, really. I just... <laughs> <laughs> I mean, but it's glorious. I mean, we're seated with Christ. And God is going to lavish upon us His grace throughout all eternity. It's as, we're, it's as if He was putting us on display for the whole universe. It's not enough that He just saved us from His wrath and He brought us into His kingdom. But he seated us with Christ. I mean, I'd be happy to be cleaning toilets and taking out the trash. I mean, what grace that God has lavished upon us. What glorious things we have waiting for us. We have been reconciled to God we have been made fellow citizens with the saints. We have been made into a holy temple for God, rooted and grounded in love, filled with all the fullness of God. It's just, it's overwhelming. It's amazing. It's just, it's utterly astounding that God would do such for us, for the wicked, for sinners, undeserving, and rebellious. These things should never be a source of pride, but rather it should produce in us humility, gratitude, love, obedience, 
So we want to see in the light of this high calling, in the light of God's glory, that we are to put off the old life with its old ways of thinking and walk in the newness of life that God has brought us into with renewed hearts and minds. That is, we don't live like we used to live, like the rest of the world lives. We don't think like the world. We don't act like the world. Not anymore, since Christ has saved us. We're not saying we're better. I'm saying that we're God's holy people, called out of the world to live for him. So before we, we jump into the text this morning, I'd like to pray. If you would join me. Dearest Father, we come before you this morning. We thank you for your word that you have given us. What an amazing thing that we have your very words, that we might feast on them, that we might know you, that we might understand ourselves and our condition and all that we have in you. We ask this morning that your Holy Spirit would help us to see what you have for us this morning in this passage, that you would give us submissive hearts to do all that you have commanded us to do in love and in gratitude, and that you would help us to put these things into practice for your glory. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. So in this short passage... In Ephesians chapter 4, verses 17 through 24, we see three commands, along with things that characterize our old way of life, all of which we are commanded to put off, ending with the life we are lived today and our call to holiness. I hope that in the course of this sermon that we'll be encouraged to greater obedience to Christ and to see not only what to avoid but to examine our hearts to see where we fall short and to consider what we must do to walk in a manner worthy of our calling as well as those things which God has provided for us to accomplish those ends. Verse 17 says, Now I say this and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do, in the futility of their thinking. The apostle prefaces his first command with not only saying this, but testifying in the Lord. It's as if to say, or as to call attention to what he's commanding us to do, to really grab our attention. I'm not just saying this to you. I'm testifying in Christ Jesus to do these things. Pay attention. As God's holy people, we have a high calling set before us to live not as the world lives, but a life in conformity to Christ and obedience to all his commands. Bearing testimony to his glorious grace to the world around us. You must no longer walk as the Gentiles do. We can't live the way we used to live anymore. 
It's just not an option. We don't live the way the Gentiles do. What, who are these Gentiles? What does Paul mean by using this term? Aren't all non-Jews, by definition, Gentiles? I mean, I'm sure there was a ton of Gentiles in the church in Ephesus. I don't think it was all Jews. But let me put it like this. I think that in the same way that the Gentiles were outside in the Old Testament, the Gentiles were outside of the covenant people of God. They were separated from God's blessing. So in the same way, Paul is using the word Gentiles here to refer to those who are outside of the new covenant people of Christ, those who believe in Jesus. So basically he's using the term as for those who do not believe. So how is this way of life characterized? How are we not to live in the futility of our minds? The Bible says that the mind of the person who is outside of Christ, the one who has not been converted, who has not believed the gospel, ultimately produces nothing of spiritual value. There is nothing in their thinking that pleases God. So we must not... But we must not think that the Bible is teaching that non-Christians are stupid. God has created people with brilliant minds. He's given them amazing gifts and talents, believers and unbelievers alike. And we can see that as readily apparent if just looking at history or even in our current day. Conversely, it doesn't mean that Christians are people with some kind of superior intellect. I know that I'm not the sharpest tool in the shed. And Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1, 26 and 29, not many wise, powerful, noble, rather foolish, weak, low and despised. God chose those things in the world that the world just doesn't think much of to show that the all-surpassing greatness is from God. So what the scripture refers to here is regards to fallen man's relationship with God. They're not in relationship with God. Unbelievers are not. So futility of the mind means that the end result of all the unbeliever thinks or does produces nothing that is going to reconcile them to God. It results in nothing good in the ultimate redemptive sense. As God said through Isaiah... In chapter 64, verse 6, that all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. Man in his fallen state cannot reason himself to saving faith. Apart from the saving faith of God, the saving grace of God, all people are without hope. The result of this futility of mind is that they are darkened in their understanding, verse 18. The unbeliever does not understand the things of God, most importantly, the gospel. It is not that they don't understand or they can't understand the propositions and things that are made by the gospel, the things that the Bible says. They, you know, they understand the words. 
they can, you know, they can believe that Jesus rose from the dead and that the things in the gospel happened. But they don't see the value in it. They don't see how it applies to them. Those without Christ, they don't see their perilous condition. They don't see their guilt. And therefore, they have no fear of God and they feel no compulsion to repent and flee to Christ that they might be saved. As Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4.4, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel in the glory, of the glory of Christ. Verse 18 goes on to say, they are alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. Fallen man is born in this world alienated from God. That's all of us. That's everybody. We were born that way. We're all, we're all at one time spiritually dead under the wrath of God without a saving knowledge of Christ. With hearts of stone, we were cold-hearted enemies of God. To be alienated from God is to be separated from all the benefits of Christ most notably being justified by him, by faith in him, no longer guilty, no longer condemned. In contrast, we who are in Christ are clothed in his righteousness, our sins forgiven, no longer counting, uh, our sins no longer counting against us. We are no longer enemies of God, having been reconciled by the perfect work of Christ upon the cross. Jesus bore all our sins, paid the penalty in full, suffering our punishment. He drank the wrath of God towards us to the very last drop. Every last one of our sins paid in full. But this is not true of unbelievers with those who have yet to obey the gospel. They're still in their sin still unforgiven, outside the blessings of Christ due to their ignorant and unrepentant minds. When we use the word ignorant, we don't mean stupid. We mean they don't know what they need to know. They don't understand how they need to understand it. The Bible describes this ignorance in a few ways. First, we're born this way. We're born spiritually dead from birth. We're told in Psalm 51, verse 5, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. We're sinners from conception. God tells us in Jeremiah 17, 9, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Self-deception doesn't get any worse. It is a self-imposed ignorance. In 2 Thessalonians verse 10 and 12, Paul tells us, they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. They did not believe the truth, but had pleasure in unrighteousness. When we were outside of Christ, we loved our sin more than God. We pursued it with gusto. No one made us sin. We did it willingly because we loved it. 
We also see that his ignorance is satanic. In Ephesians 2.2, it says that all unbelievers follow the prince of the power of the air. That's the devil. And he is at work in the sons of disobedience. And again, we are told in 2 Corinthians 4.4, again, that Satan has blinded the minds of the unbeliever. And then, this is probably the most terrible, this ignorance is imposed by God as a just punishment for blatant rebellion. Again, we're told in 2 Thessalonians, 2nd chapter, verse 11, he says, therefore, because of this willful refusal of the gospel, we're told that God sends them a strong delusion so that they may believe what is false. It's as if God's saying, all right, you want to run your own life? Have at it. You want to believe these lies? Go for it. You want to be free of me? This pigsty that you're living in, that you think is so cool, is going to be like quicksand, and you're going to perish in it. The person without Christ goes on in their autonomous pursuit of what pleases them with a total disregard for the glory of God. They go deeper into darkness and their hearts just grow harder and colder. As Paul goes on to tell us, verse 19, they have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. One of the tragic characteristics of sin is that it tends to harden the sinner, becoming insensitive to God. They feel nothing towards him and care little or nothing for his commands. And this callousness, this hardness of heart, can lead to an ever-increasing desire for more, more sin. The deceitful promises of sin never deliver what was promised. We know that. We've been down that road. And its pleasures are always short-lived. Now, you've probably observed that not every unbeliever out there sinks to the lowest depths of sinful practice possible. And that's true. By the kindness of God, many, if not most, are outwardly good, outwardly moral people. God has now allowed all to sink as far as they could possibly go. And that's by his grace. He can restrain the wicked by his grace. But the reality is, no matter how good they look out on the outside, all of them love going their own way, not the ways of God. All unbelievers are still separated from the love of God that is in Christ, living lives in flagrant disobedience to God. All are still under his just wrath. And unless they repent and believe in Christ, are in grave danger of paying the full price for their crimes 
against a holy God. I might mention that this love of God, some of you might think or you've heard that God loves everybody unconditionally. It's just a side note, side sermon here. God's love for us, for us who are in Christ, is totally conditional. It's conditional in Christ Jesus. When we talk about God's love for humanity in general, we're talking about it just a beneficent disposition towards all that he's created, taking care of everybody. Like Jesus said, he causes his rain to fall on the just and the unjust. We woke up this morning, everybody who woke up this morning woke up because God graciously and lovingly, lovingly kept them through the night. Our hearts beat, our lungs draw on air, all of those things are a loving and gracious gift of God. But it's not redemptive love. It's not love that we have in Christ. All who are outside of Christ are separated from that love. And that's what the gospel calls us into. It calls us into that love, to know that love that we have in Christ. So this is how we used to live apart from Christ. This is what all of us were before God saved us. We used to live for ourselves and not for Christ. But this is not so. <clears throat> but for us who believe, Paul says in verses 20 and 21, that is not the way you learn Christ, assuming that you heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus. The gospel is a call to repentance and faith in Christ and in his perfect work. All Christians, true Christians, not just Christians in name only, but all who have responded to the gospel call in true repentance, forsaking sin, placing saving faith in Jesus alone and in his perfect work, have done so not because of our own wisdom, but because of the gracious working of the Holy Spirit in our hearts and minds. It was no worldly wisdom that got us here, but the wise, sovereign working of Almighty God. It was with imperishable seed of the living and abiding Word of God implanted in our hearts that gave us birth to eternal life, also bearing fruit unto holiness and godliness, earnestly desiring to walk in all his ways, this is our life. This is our calling. It's not merely professing faith in Christ, receiving forgiveness, and then go on living the way we were living. The Bible warns us that such a faith is a dead faith and cannot save. True, blood-bought, God-given faith results in a changed life, a life of love, love for God, love for others, and especially the family of God. True gospel faith bears fruit unto righteousness, a love for the good and an abhorrence or a hatred for the evil that we used to walk in. We are now eagerly, 
eager to obey our new master. We now walk in truth, and our minds have been awakened to the glories of Christ in the gospel. Our minds are no longer dark and no longer focused on our old worldly way of life, but have shining in them the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. 2 Corinthians 4, 6. To put off the old self, we are commanded to put off the old self which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on new life, put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness, verses 22 through 24. Now we have two explicit commands given here in these last three verses. The first is to put off the old self. The second, put off the new self. Put on the new self. I know that we all want to do these things more than anything. We long to put, on our, put off our old self. We cry out with the Apostle Paul, O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? And we long for the day when we are perfected in the fullness of Christ. Well, that's some good news and some bad news. First, the bad news. There's no quick and easy plan to Christ-like maturity. No three easy steps. But the good news is we have a perfect high priest who purchased us and provided for us with all we need for life and godliness. He's going to do it his work as we look into putting off the old self and how we put it off it is important to understand what it is Paul says here that it is part of and belonging to our old manner of life that which we turned away from when we turned to Christ all of our sinful ways always pursuing our own pleasures rather than the pleasures of God So in a very real sense, we've left it behind. I mean, that's a reality today. When we turn to Christ, we turn away from the old life. We have forsaken it to cleave to Christ. God, having granted us repentance, has changed us in the spirit of our minds. We see this in verse 23. We should also note that the word repent literally means to change the mind. And this change is not merely changing our minds like we would when we're deciding what flavor of ice cream to eat or what tie to wear. But it's a radical change in the way we see everything. It's no less than a supernatural work of the Holy Spirit when he regenerates us, when he made us alive in Christ. While our minds are not fully sanctified at conversion, we are forever changed. And we continue in our new life, being transformed and renewed. God is at work in us, and we are at work. Our justification, our regeneration, that was the work of God alone, 
It was the monergistic work of God. We added nothing to it. We didn't cooperate with it. We couldn't. We were dead. Sanctification, that's synergistic. It's a work we're called to do. We're called to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. But it is God who is working in us. He's working out his will. He's working out all his redemptive purposes in us. Paul says in Philippians 3.14, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. I mean, Paul is such an example. The race that he ran, all, I mean, he forsook all. I mean, he's, in that passage, he says he, he tossed it aside for the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus. He fought a good fight. So we also, we must pursue this with diligence and endurance for God's joy, for God's glory and our joy. To put off the old self, verse 22, is not only to forsake, but to deny its desires and to put it to death. Romans 8.13 says, For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For we know God's will for us, our sanctification, 1 Thessalonians 4.3. We know His commands. By His grace, we walk in obedience. We renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives, Titus 2.12. This isn't burdensome. This is glorious. Our Lord, who has called us to this, is glorious. I mean, He is everything. It's hard. It's a battle. I know. And we, we do sin along the way. But we have a helper the spirit of truth, who will sanctify us in the truth. The word of God, John 17, 17. Christians, beloved of God, we need to avail ourselves of everything that God has provided for us to live this life. That we might grow in faith and live for his glory. Basically, the means of grace are the church, the Word of God. That includes sitting under good preaching, study, meditation, sacraments, baptism, the Lord's table, prayer, worship, fellowship, part of the church. All these things are simple things. They're not flashy. They're not whatever the kind of things that, that the world chases after but they're powerful. We must be faithful in them. The one who called us is faithful, and he will do it. How long will this take? Not long. Just until we die. Until Christ calls us to himself. But whatever it takes, our pursuit of holiness, whatever it costs, whatever things that we strive after, 
to fulfill this calling, to walk in obedience with Christ. It's all worth it. It's all worth it. So worth it. We are to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God, verse 24. This is simply stated being conformed to the image of Christ, which God has predestined us to. Romans 8.29. When he says put on, it simply means to be and live who and what we are in Christ. That, that term, put on, always threw me. And, and it's not like we're just dressing up for something, to be something that we really are not. We're putting it on because of the reality of who and what we are. It's like, it's like a police officer. He puts on his uniform because he's a police officer and he puts on his uniform and he goes out and he does his work, he does his job because he's a police officer. Now, an imposter could put on a, a police uniform and go out there and act like a police officer, but he has no authority because he's not really a police officer. So when we put on the new self, it's not a just... It's not a mere facade. It is who we are in Christ. So he's just basically saying, live and be who you are in Christ. So these means that God has given us, how do they work to conform us to the image of Christ? The Holy Spirit takes these things and applies them to us, and primarily through our intellect. He uses them to renew our minds. When we submit ourselves, for instance, to the preaching of the Word of God, we're sitting under the authority of God. It is, word, it is His Word being preached to us. Perhaps our minds are awakened to things we have not considered. God shines light on sin that we haven't perhaps been aware of or taken seriously, and now our hearts are cut to the quick. We must always consider that the Word of God is profitable. We can all appreciate making a profit. Well, how much more should we consider making a profit that benefits our souls? How gladly should we invest in eternity? Infinitely so. All Scripture, all scripture is God-breathed and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete and equipped for every good work. Second, or 1 Timothy 3.16 and 17. In short, all the means that God provides work in us for the building of our faith and for our sanctification, that we might live for God and glorify Him in all things. so that we might live in true righteousness and holiness. Verse 24, the end of verse 24. This life we have called to live, I said, is no moralistic facade. We did not just decide one day to clean up our acts and stop doing this and start doing that. We're truly righteous in Christ. We are truly living out that out practically 
in obedience to him. So the imputed righteousness of Christ is our justification. And our living out that righteousness is our sanctification. That is what God has called us to. We are truly holy in Christ, set apart from the world, living for God. Our shame and enmity against God are no more. They're wiped away. Now, you might be thinking this is a tall order. It is. Some days I feel like I'm barely hanging on by my fingernails. But this you must know. Our Lord who sanctifies us is like a master craftsman, like a blacksmith. He takes his work, takes the iron, plunges it into the fire, heats it up till it's pliable, malleable. And he works it on the anvil with his hammer until it takes the form of that which pleases him. So too, our Lord, the Holy Spirit takes us. He plunges us in the fire of affliction and works us with the hammer of his word to form us into that perfect form that will be most pleasing to him. And it will be most pleasing to us as well when we awaken his likeness. There is no easy way. This is the way of the cross. But it's glorious. We must keep our eyes fixed on him, on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. He endured the cross with joy. Consider what he paid. Consider what he suffered to bring us, to purchase this for us. He didn't pay such an infinite price just to leave us flounder in our weakness. There's no way. I mean, he's totally faithful. He is like, as Ephesians chapter 5 tells us, he's a loving husband who loved his bride, laying his life down for her, paying the price. He is our great high priest, our savior. Consider that hope that we have in Christ. The infinite treasure that we have in him waiting for us in all its fullness. How can we not leave the old ways behind? The dark ways of thinking. Who really wants to go back to being dressed in filthy, stinking rags? What could be more obvious? By the Spirit we have been washed with clean water, Cleansed by the blood of Christ. We have the garments of Christ's righteousness. True righteousness. True holiness. We must wear it well. In closing, I want to say to those who have yet to repent and place your trust in Christ, If this all seems hopeless, if this calling is beyond you, remember that those of us who now believe were once without hope in the world apart from Christ. But God, because of his great love, saved us. While we were still dead in our sins, he made us alive in Christ through faith by the gospel. 
I remember before I was converted, listening, overhearing the guy who led me, who shared the gospel with me, talking about how he was and how God had changed him. And I remember thinking to myself, I could never do that. That could never happen. And by the age of 20, I'd already realized my bondage to sin. Christ broke that bondage. That's what he does. That's what he does for all who come to him. All that the Father gives me, Jesus said, will come to me, and whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. So come to Jesus. Why should any perish? And this is the will of him who sent me, Jesus said, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. John six thirty-seven through 40. So there it is. If you walk in darkness, you do so willfully. If your minds are darkened, they are dark because you love darkness more than light. If the door is shut, you've shut it. Jesus is the light. So come into the light. Jesus is the door. Enter in to eternal life. Don't refuse his call to you. To all of you who love Christ and trust in him, I want to say again, to forsake sin wholeheartedly with no thought or reservation for it. Let us always be mindful of who we are in Christ right now, the reality of what God has done for us in transforming us by the power of the Holy Spirit through his word, through his gospel. And how are we are to live according to it. I'd like to close with Paul's word from 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 16 through 7 1. For we are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will make a dwelling among them and walk among them. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Therefore, go out from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord, and touch no unclean thing. Then I will welcome you, and I will be a father to you, and you shall be my sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. Since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. Please pray with me. Holy Father, how gracious you are. 
the wonders that you have performed for us in Christ are unfathomable. We rejoice in you that you have made us your own, that you have secured us in Christ Jesus irrevocably. Nothing can separate us from your love that we have in Christ Jesus. And we pray that all that you have ordained to do in us for your glory, you would do. And that we would strive after it faithfully, obediently, joyfully, gratefully. Father, we praise you for your grace and your mercy to sinners. That you turn away no one who comes to you. That all who believe in you shall be saved. All glory and honor to your name. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.